welcome back to What's Up With, the World Institute on Disability podcast, where we discuss what's up in the disability community across the globe. If you're new here, I'm your host, Ashleen Kumsa. And on today's episode, I will be sharing with you my very, very fruitful conversation with Dustin Gibson about the disability justice framework. Now, Dustin's work centers around eradicating institutionalization and incarceration. He is the Access, Disability, and Language Justice Coordinator over at People's Hub. He is also a peer support trainer at Disability Link. He's a founding member of the Harriet Tubman Collective, and he also works with a number of other organizations that focus on abolishing the carceral system and the oppression of people with disabilities. Dustin and I, we really, really had a fantastic and a raw conversation about the disability justice framework and the origins of ableism and its interconnectedness with other systems of oppression. So I really and truly hope that you enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much, Dustin, for joining me for today's episode of What's Up With. If you could please explain to us how the disability rights movement changed the lives of people with disabilities and where it kind of fell short. Judith Butler talks about like the idea of being able to assemble in public and deliberate and debate and gather being central to participating in a democracy. So I think what uh, disability rights movements, which I, I, I think of it is in factions as well. I don't think that it was just like this one large monolithic uh, push for, you know, disability rights, but more so um, a bunch of smaller efforts that combined to create, you know, this this critical mass, I guess, of, of people that are pushing in different areas for the rights. So I view that in the lineage of the Black radical tradition too, knowing that like some of the history behind how students organized and other disabled people organized in California to bring about uh, uh, even uh, access to education or the 504, knowing that they got those templates and, and that strategy from the U.S. Black South and uh, the, the traditions of Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, so I view it as a part of that. And it's also a fight for autonomy and agency in the same way that people like Fannie Lou Hamer were fighting for, right? Thinking about the being able to uh, choose what you do with your own body, especially as a as a black poor woman um, at that time and today too. Um, so I, I think about the disability rights movement as something that has provided, one, an articulation of what it actually means to be disabled in a society that is inaccessible and ableist. And then two, like it's it's given like a, 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 a platform and a possibility of being able to deliberate in public and um, being a part of the public, which is also central to democracy. So when we talk about we the public, I don't think that disabled people are necessarily included in that inherently. Um, so what the disability rights movement has done in my perspective is chip away at that quite literally if thinking about you know the uh, smashing of curbs and, and whatnot. Where would you say that it fell short? As you uh, as you said that I'm thinking about Kwame Torrey's quote and I'm not gonna put it into like a lot of context so I don't want this to be stripped out of context and I would just ask people to maybe like look it up but when he was talking about like nonviolence as a strategy and saying that uh, uh, Dr. King made one fallacious assumption, and that was that the United States had um, uh, 
the United States had a, a, a conscious and they don't. So I think that the assumption of the disability rights movement is that, uh, along with other civil rights movements, uh, really is that the 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 settler colonial state of the U.S., the project of the U.S., the imperialist project that it is, um, could actually grant people these types of rights, um, and 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 would want to. So it lives within this construct that is inherently ableist, racist, misogynistic, patriarchal, imperialist, like all of those things and more. It lives with inside of that project. So. I, I think the failure of it is to not be able to capture and uh, be in solidarity with, with other movements. And that's not to say that that didn't happen. It, it definitely happened. It still happens now. Um, but it, it didn't do in a wholesale way that... Um, and this is not just an indictment of the civil, the disability rights movement. This is all civil rights movements in, in my perspective, too, that they haven't forged enough solidarity cross-issue, cross-group, cross-people in order to actually uh, bring about what I would believe is a revolution to, to actually, you know, seed the liberation of people and, and seed power um, in a way that we need it in order to, I mean, literally in this point, thinking about the environment in order to survive um, us and the planet. And can you talk about how the disability justice movement, how it addresses that and how it seeks to address these shortcomings of the disability rights movement? Yeah, um, I, I, I do want to caution that I don't necessarily think that we have uh, a disability justice movement right now. Hmm. And I say that as uh, somebody that is like uh, extremely concerned with prisons, jails, nursing facilities, asylums, state hospitals, all forms of institutions, group homes, places where people's freedom has been taken away from them, places where they're under 24-7 surveillance, places where people are monitored even outside of these carceral apparatuses. Um, and, and just thinking about how there's not just like enough attention paid to that. Like even in a time where... Um, we're in the, still in the middle of a pandemic where the majority of the people that have died from um, COVID have been people that are residents or are, are being held captive in nursing facilities and other types of institutions like prisons. And that's not even counting like the amount of people that are connected to them and somehow that have contracted it because of that. So I, I think about how how little attention is paid to those people who are mostly disabled um, and knowing that a movement can't actually move without those people. Um, so I, I, I think about the prison abolitionist movement and one of the things that is, has been, that I appreciate about it is that it, it works from inside of prisons. Like people inside of prisons are the ones organizing, are the ones articulating a vision, are the ones telling us what is happening in prisons telling us the impact on it. And there's like this communication that exists in the way that it doesn't with some of the other forms of institutions. Um, I think that's something that we really should be concerned about and reflect upon as people that are interested in disability justice and building movement. Now I will say that we are building movement. Like there is an ecosystem that is forming. There's a lot of disabled artists that are articulating our experiences. Um, in creative ways, they're, they're receiving platforms now or, 
or building platforms that I don't think we've seen with uh, artists that would socially and politically identify as disabled. So I guess another point would be is like the, uh, the tying like our identities to, to or understanding our identities is, is political is an important aspect of disability justice where whereas though I think uh, for a lot of different reasons the disability rights movements the traditional ones weren't at a place where they're able to understand themselves as people that are politicized regardless of um, how you identify. So disability justice is attempting to, uh, or I think it is a is an opportunity to be able to reach people that will never identify as disabled for a lot of reasons, right? There's a lot of reasons in which uh, it, it's dangerous to identify as disabled. Uh, you could be tracked into uh, substandard uh, uh, education system. You can be tracked into the prison system like even right now one of the pushes is to like figure out how many disabled people are uh incarcerated and i would caution against that too because there's been no indication to say that if they find out people are disabled that there's there to do anything to actually benefit or improve their lives it's quite the contrary so those are some of the things that i think disability justice asks us i don't have like answers for it or solutions but i think that the questions that animate the work of disability justice are, are really, really distinct from those that disability rights asks us. Disability rights asks us who is public, which is very important, critical. It asks us, are these institutions accessible? Is there accommodations being provided? I think all of that is important. But then I also think that work of like, how do we uh, fight for the rights of and secure the rights of people that don't know that they're disabled or reject the label of disabled or how do we um, how do we fight against all of the disabling systems and, and violences that take place without marginalizing the people that will be disabled regardless of those systems or those violences and those are like questions that again like I don't have answers to but I think that kind of animates the work and, and I would say the last thing like that I see as a separation is um, the uh, the focus on the individual through the law, uh, the, the the ADA or the Americans with Disabilities Act taking its uh, you know definition from the 504 uh, provisions of the the Rehab Act of '73 is like carving out individual accommodations for people. Like yes, there's like this you know way in which we build an accessible world or are supposed to. We know that we don't actually do that. Um, so it's failed in that regard. There's no way to actually enforce these things. How mm -hmm. the U.S. as this settler colonial project enforces things is through criminalization. And we know that that's not like, going to actually get us anywhere. So that individual approach to accommodations is something that uh, disability justice pushes back against and understanding that uh, what we're doing has to be collective. Um, in a way that, yeah, those individual accommodations, they're set up for specific people rather than how we would all interact together. Um. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that we're not yet in a disability justice movement, but we're building upon one. 
I think of like last summer, how, you know, Black Lives Matter, that was like, you know, a movement, so to speak, it was supposed to be. But I think of, I juxtapose where we were again last summer against where we are now and how it's not really so much on the vanguard, like people are not nearly as energized as they were at that time. So how do we build upon a, to create a movement rather than just a moment? Like, can that even be done in 2021 where, I don't know, people's attention spans are so whatever and social media incentivizes people to say things on social media and they feel like they're making a change, but they're not really doing much of anything. How do we build upon and create a movement rather than a moment? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a good question, and I'm not sure if I'm the person that's most equipped to answer that. But I do think that, uh, well, I know for sure that those moments, the moments of polarization, which I think we need more polarization. I think we need to be clear about we're fighting against fascists. We're fighting against people that, quite frankly, would would kill us if if they had the opportunity to and and do in very, you know, methodical ways on a daily basis. Like, so I think we need to be clear about that and like choose sides and actually root down and build what we need. Um, and a part of that is understanding that those moments of protest, those moments of, of, of uprisings are opportunities for organizers to create opportunities for those people to become a part of the movements. So, although it's not as visible as it was last year, like even taking from those, the, the protest after George Floyd uh, was murdered, people like rooted down in their local communities and, and got together and, and, and formed networks to be able to uh, uh, build strategy around what it actually means to defund the police. And I mean, to the tune of like almost a billion dollars in a year, there's been disinvestments from police. Now there's been, you know, counter attacks to that and federal funding and all of these other things that have happened. But what I'm taking from that is after those moments of protest, what happens is people go into rooms, people hold political education workshops. Sometimes four people show up, sometimes six people show up, but those people show up continuously and hold that space and think of new and innovative ways um, and sometimes old ways to like build what we actually want to see. Um, and I think that's what builds movement along with art. Like I think art is like such a critical aspect of, you know, how we articulate our experience and document what is happening right now. And I, I see more disabled artists becoming engaged in, in a political, uh, uh, a political type of, of, of craft, I guess, like, even the craft itself of disabled artistry is something that Simi Linton, one of my mentors, we referred to as like disability is an aesthetic. And thinking about like that process of crafting and creating while being disabled is also teaching us what access is and how to engage in access. And I think that work of like, you know, how do we perform access? How do we, uh, uh, how do we perform access is is allowing us to interact with each other and the planet in a different way, which I think is the vehicle to abolition, is the vehicle that we'll use to get to where wherever we want to go. Because the how is just as important as the, you know, the what. How would you say that the systems of racism, ableism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, etc., how do they interact and reinforce one another? 
I would say that they're like literally dependent upon one another. Like Mm -hmm. one can't exist without the other. Um, And uh, they're they're weaponized and used against us that way. There's like a bunch of things we can cite, right? We can cite that uh, queerness was in the the DSM for up until the 60s. -hmm. we can we can cite how people like right now in California there's a bill to to get reparations for um, uh, to provide reparations for people that were forcefully sterilized in, in institutions prisons um, there's like over twenty thousand people that they had documented and about three hundred fifty are living now so one I should mention that giving people twenty five thousand dollars for that is like absurd and like insulting. Um, but it's an acknowledgement that something happened. But thinking about the people that were uh, forcefully sterilized and still are in some cases, um, the women in North Carolina, the, the the poor women, the black women in North Carolina, in Sunflower County, Mississippi, we were talking about Fannie Lou Hamer earlier, and also people like uh, disabled people that go into institutions where those same, so the justifications for um, attempting to get, you know, rid of populations, essentially, eugenics, the justifications for that has, has always been these type of marginalized identities. Um, so that's like one convergence of what that looks like. Um, I think of prisons as a place where we can see like the convergence of this, like, you can see that the majority of, of, of women, and I'm speaking specifically for Pennsylvania, have experienced some form of sexual assault, either prior to or during their incarceration. Um, can also see higher rates, disproportionate rates of psychiatric disabilities um, within the population of people in prison. So, like, there's it's it's a place where you can kind of see like the uh, the outcomes of what is happening in in the free world, I guess, and, and who is actually being targeted by it. And and what we often find is people are not like you know, I, I think Audrey Lord said the single layered. We're not single layered, so you'll find that people have multiple identities, um, and and those are the ones that are targeted the most. Those are the people that are, um, I, I don't want to say, mo- for, for lack of a better phrase, I'd say most oppressed. I think a lot of people think of uh, the civil rights movement, or right now, Black Lives Matter movement, um, women's rights movement. People think of them as being separate movements, but they don't realize how it's all connected to one another. So liberation for one is liberation for all. So definitely. Yeah, I, think. I even I even think about that in the context of slavery. And I think about Sojourner Truth's like freedom journey and how she infamously walks away, doesn't run away from a plantation. But after she was allegedly supposed to get her freedom papers, um, like the the thing that kept her on the plantation was uh, uh, a hand injury or a wrist injury, which was essentially a disability. And the justification was you wouldn't be able to be self-sustainable. So yeah. thinking about how those like her identities could could be leveraged at different points to do the same thing to benefit you know the institution of slavery um, and take away her freedom. And that's like I think some of the the, the the more important things rather than just like thinking about um, all of it's important. So yes, thinking about how the systems interplay with each other and how they, they feed off of one another, but also how they can be leveraged against and justified at any point in time. Mm-hmm. 
Yep, I think of, uh, you know, the phrenology that was used to justify slavery, that they said that the slaves' brains, like the composition of like the Africans, their brains, and th that's what made them inferior to whites. Therefore, they deserved to be slaves. And those of them who wanted to run away, they were considered to be mentally unstable as well. So all of it is connected and it has such historical... Like if you go back, you see everything, everything is connected. Like all of these- Yeah, like those- those census records that tell us like the majority of free black people in 1860 or 1840 are people that you know are essentially in their words idiotic and insane and then um people that are still in enslavement or or, or slaves are people that are of sound body and mind like that pathologizing of uh of blackness and disability happening at the same time is like mm -hmm. something that still comes out today and you know uh what I would refer to or to Leela Lewis would refer to as the manufacturing of disability and, mm. and things like excited delirium or oppositional defiance disorder um, where it is depending upon like a character of what how black people behave in order to create and inform this idea of what a disability is and then from there you know you can purportedly treat people which is usually punishment. I think a perfect modern day example is how you see black women, how we die at such a higher, disproportionately higher rate at childbirth and how black women are not believed when they when they say that they're in pain when they're pregnant and then it results in that happening. It's like that intersectionality of being black, being a woman and having a disability, you know, and not being believed and just being made to be, you know, gaslit and then ultimately it's killing us. Can't get enough of What's Up Wid? Great news! We've recently welcomed a new addition to our What's Up Wid franchise, our monthly newsletter. Our What's Up Wid newsletter highlights our latest blog posts, podcast episodes, videos, and news media features every single month. To sign up, visit our website at www.wid.org and click on sign up for email updates from Wid located on the left and subscribe to our monthly newsletter so you never miss out on What's Up with Wid. If you're a fan of the What's Up With podcast, you can show your support with a small monthly donation starting at just 99 cents. Make a contribution today by clicking on the listener support button on our podcast website located at www.anchor.fm forward slash WID dash ORG. Why do you think that recognizing this intersectionality of multiply marginalized people with disabilities, why is that so important? Yeah, I, I think that's important because as we understand disability, I'm speaking mostly for myself, I understand disability is, is, is really through a lens of whiteness and it is constructed by and for white people and not just white, just wealthy white people as well. So I think it's important because disability lives in every group, you know, we can think of in the world, right? And, uh, uh, and I also believe that it lives within us in our bodies and minds differently. I don't think a diagnosis of schizophrenia or um, cerebral palsy is the exact same thing in people. And some, some of the things that uh, separate it or, or make it unique, I guess, and how it lives within us um, is our social determinants. It is socioeconomic status. Um, I think that uh, uh, 
there's like this cog wheel like when we do workshops sometimes we have like an image of a cog wheel that says trauma and violence is a cause and consequence of disability and and uh poverty is a cause and a consequence of violence and violence is a cause and consequence of trauma and like all of those things creating and shaping what our actual experiences are um so if we respond to disability that's what we do with the with the with the law or with disability rights we respond to what this disability is and how you can accommodate that stagnant thing with a disability justice perspective that is uh uh uh, relying upon or, or is rooted in one of the principles being intersectionality is to understand that all of those other things uh, shape how we live and shape also how we respond to it. So rather than it being this individual thing, it has to be more wholesale than that. Disability doesn't live in a vacuum. And I, I think that uh, intersectionality is a, is, a, is a lens to be able to view how like how our experiences are shaped by not just our other identities, but how our identities are literally interplaying with the systems of domination and oppression and power. Power being like the key in that definition from Kim Crenshaw about intersectionality. Um, and as an organizer, as somebody that's concerned with attempting to find uh, a new ways of being, I guess, uh, uh, identifying that power is important to, for us to seed it and build it and leverage it and do all of the things that we need to do to change that experience. If that experience is one that is, you know, being harmed or having violence inflicted upon us. Why is it so important that we center the experiences of those who are multiply marginalized instead of, you know, centering scholars? And why is it important that we center their experiences when we're talking about the disability justice framework? I think that the like the, the idea of like centering specific people has been like somewhat convoluted. And I do think it's like really complex. Um, I think that we should we should yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think we should be cautious about like what that actually means to center people. Mm -hmm. I, I think about times of um, when when somebody is murdered by the police, right? Um, and and we say we need to center the families. Oftentimes, what that means is um, the families are now in a position where they have to give policy recommendation, where they have to say how they're going to how we should as a collective stop this from happening to somebody else. Um, and I think that's an impossible situation to be put in one. Um, I think it's very unfair. I don't think it's actually supportive. Um, and, and I mean, Miriam Kava, I would recommend Miriam Kava's last book, We Do This Till We Free Us, uh, where her and Andrea Ritchie has an article where they discuss, you know, or some, some recommendations of what support in an abolitionist politic looks like in moments like that. Um, so I say all of that to say that this is why movement is so important because we need scholars, we need artists, we need people that are not disabled, we need people that are not in prison to also be contributing, right? Like, so we're centering the experience. That means that we're, we're believing what people are saying about their lives. We need impacted people to tell us like what is actually happening to them in order to understand it. So that I would say is focal. And that's what I would mean by 
And I think disability justice principles are articulating when we say leadership of the most impacted. Um, and I come out of the tradition of independent living um, movement where uh, one of my elders, Ken Mitchell, always says, um, we are the experts of our own lives, which is a very radical thing, right? Like at, at a time, you know, 50, 60 years ago when uh, it was widely believed, more widely than now, that disabled people couldn't have any type of control over their finances, their living situation, have a job. It's a it's a radically different world from from then. So for them to be saying experts of their own lives at that time, I think speaks to the the level of self determination that has to exist like within movements. And that leadership of the most impacted is one of those things I think that is like like uh, hearkening back to or or calling in like the self determination piece uh, that has to be a part of like what we're doing when we say we want rights for disabled people or to build power amongst ourselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what do you think the role of non-disabled, not only non-disabled, I would say white people, what is their role in this movement? What do you think their role is? Yeah, I think the role is to be in principled struggle. Like, yeah, I, I oftentimes see like, um, like, I guess good intentioned white people I would refer to them as maybe like liberals really and I'm taking like liberal from Asada Shakur's like uh, writings when she's like liberal is the most meaningless word in the in, in the dictionary and then she goes on to talk about why because um, it means nothing and you know but I would say that uh, for uh, for those people it is to literally be in principled struggle and by that is like it's rooted in something this is our goal and and actually have like a thought behind it where i see a lot of the times is like liberal white people is just like literally blanketly follow whatever person they think is the most impacted and is popular and there's no like critical analysis behind that like we don't need um people that just can't are not forming their own thoughts and are just like being led by whoever we want people to also be in that struggle of, of trying to answer some of those questions with us. Like that is not like, if, if we truly believe our liberation is bound up with one another, like they have to see themselves as a part of this. Like mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about increasing access, when we talk about uh, participating in a democracy, like they also have to be, uh, 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 yeah, they also have to be people concerned with that. So if if they're doing the oppressing, then they have to figure out how they stop doing the oppressing. Um, if they're not the ones doing the oppressing, they have to articulate and, and, and find ways to, to, to come up with some of the same solutions that we are. Um, and by we, I'm speaking specifically about black people. And there's definitely spaces where I believe it's important for black people to convene and only black people. Um, and in those situations, there's a bunch of ways to support. Resources um, could be the first thing, and that's financial. That's uh, uh, you could even provide access, right? Accessibility. There's, there's. I think a, to be more creative is, I guess, what non-disabled white people should do. Um, be more creative with how they contribute, and that's not to say that there's not a lot of people contributing now, because there, there is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What do you, what would you say, um, why would you say, I should say, 
that it is crucial that we kind of adopt the disability justice framework and recognizing intersectionality. Why is that? Why is this framework so important to the liberation of people with disabilities? I think it's important because we need a vision. Like we need a we need something to build towards. I, I think another failure of the disability rights movement um, is uh, it like ended with legislation. Like like it, it, it feels like, and I mean, this this is something I've debated with, with elders, is it feels to me as somebody that wasn't around, wasn't born when these, these movements were taking shape and, you know, uh, uh, building that, the the end goal felt like you know the the the, the signing of legislation with you know the enforcement and and we thought it would do something that it didn't I even think about Olmstead as a decision where there's a lot of like uh, uh and Olmstead being the, the the Supreme Court case with Lois Curtis and um and Elaine that uh they take it all the way to Supreme Court in order to get uh uh uh, integration mandate meaning that like you can live in your community or have the option to live in your community rather than being in an institution and i also lived lois curtis as somebody black woman from the south in the south that creates incredible art too and also on the spot so it's just drawing portraits of you as you stand in front of her and not even being in conversation with you and it coming out incredible but um i i think like the that that ceiling that there's there's a cap on this this settler colonial project like we are never going to be able to uh, uh, receive like a full bill of rights from this this project so disability justice is important to adopt for people that are concerned with the lives of disabled people it's because it forces us to imagine outside of that to build outside of that when I think about abolition which is also a part of disability justice. It is not something that is just telling us that we want to destroy the death-making machines that are prisons, that are institutions, that are police. It is, we want the end to that, to abolish that, but we also understand it as a project of absence, like Ruthie Wilson Gilmore talks about. And that is an invitation into building something. That is an invitation into envisioning, and quite literally, just like on a, uh, I guess on a, in a sobering way, it is like being able to see ourselves in the future, which I've worked with a lot of young people, young disabled people, some in jail, some not. Um, and that that just like thought of, you know, what do I look like in 20 years is not something that's common. And I think disability justice is inviting people into just like pondering that. And with that, like we can like actually like start to build that today, which people are building that world today, but just to the point where we can even imagine it. Um, I think that's what it does uh, for us. Cause even if, even if disability rights, it, say the ADA did everything that it's intended to do, we still have to ask that question of like, now what, what do we have now? Now that there's access, Say in a world which I don't believe there's ever going to be 100% access, I think there will always be access conflicts. And that's also a part of disability justice is building the muscle and the skill to be able to respond in those moments. Um, but so if that all works and we have 100% access, then what is left is like what we want to build and, and 
that cap on disability rights is not giving us that invitation to like build that in a way. Um, it's it's asking for people to do something for us. We we need power. Like we need to be self determining and uh, struggle through that t together. And like we literally can't get that from somebody else. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. How did you get involved in this um, space? How did you get involved in the disability um, activism space, and why? Um, like I said, I came out of independent living um, and independent living movement and working at a center, um, which was in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, which is a borough of uh, Pittsburgh. Um, and yeah, like I was to, to, to be around people, there was, there was, I, I would hear stories of like the, the, the center that we were in, the, the, the physical building was a nursing facility built in the uh, like the mid to late 1800s for Protestant women. And to go into it like on a visceral level to see disabled people in, in power chairs, uh, blind people, deaf people, all types of people with all array of disabilities in a space that was literally set up for people to go in and be trapped there and stay there forever and die there. Like to see them reclaim that and to 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 see themselves as people that are one capable and then two fighting for other people to believe in themselves as capable as well. Like that was just like a intoxicating feeling for me is to to know that people are yeah, people are concerned with that type of power. But then after that, like that's uh that's time where there's uprisings in St. Louis where my people are from, like literally the place where my people are from. Um, and simultaneously police killing people in, in Pittsburgh, namely Bruce Kelly Jr. who is a couple blocks away from the center that I was just talking about um, with diagnosed disabilities that the, 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 the police are aware of murdered. So from there, like, to, to be around people that are actively attempting to change that, that's where I would say it was, was some of the moments that started it. I mean, I have a longer trajectory than that because I think the, the experiences that I, that I had growing up and I mean, that continue to this day absolutely shaped how I viewed the world. I, I point to those moments are the moments in which I uh, developed the language I was given game by my elders. Milt Henderson is somebody when I first came to Pittsburgh, really just took me under his wing and showed me how to, I mean, really how to move, how to navigate the city, who was who, what was what. Like, so I developed a lot of language around that period and also a lot of courage. Yeah, does that answer the question? I feel yeah. like I just started rambling a bit. <laughs> no, for sure. I was just curious on how you got started. And I always say that, we all are the sum of our own lived experience. And those of us who work in this space and, you know, advocacy and, you know, justice spaces, social justice spaces, oftentimes, yes, we're shaped from, you know, the time that we're very young to do, to be on that trajectory, to do what we ultimately end up doing. So I just wanted to hear. And yeah, it's an yeah. amazing. Experience. And I know this is audio, so I'm just letting people know that I'm not in my head right now. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been amazing. It was great to think out loud with you and really just unpack all these systems. It was amazing. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you for having me and having this space.
appreciated Dustin's expertise in abolition and really being able to examine the disability justice framework through the lenses of the many interconnected systems of oppression. It was such a pleasure to chat with someone who is really working on the ground with so many organizations fighting for the liberation of people with disabilities. And Dustin really laid out some actionable steps that both disabled and non-disabled people can take towards liberation. And I really did come away from our conversation feeling personally empowered and galvanized. And I hope that you did as well. Now you can find transcripts and American Sign Language interpretations for each and every episode of What's Up With over on our website at www.wid.org forward slash what's dash up dash wid. And to close out with our famous last words here on What's Up With, paraphrasing one of our founders, Ed Roberts, we need to get out there and change the old attitudes so we can build forward better. Thank you once again, and I will talk to you next time.